I started in the account side, so managing the accounts and then started managing the team from there. Then I moved through to sales. Never in my life would I have thought that sales would be somewhere I would end up. I ended up there because I knew it was the right thing for Megaphone and I knew that I would give it absolutely everything. I definitely have had issues letting work impact my personal life or just making work my life because I enjoy it. And so I think that can be also difficult for other people to understand when it's like, that is also what I consider fun. Um, and so I think that balance, I've struggled with the balance. Just don't let anything stop you or let second guess yourself through that. I think if you set that goal and everything you do is aligned towards hitting that goal, you will hit it. If you let things like self-doubt come in or if you stray from that path, then that's not the straight line that you're heading towards. So I think just having that belief in yourself. My name is Lauren Oakes and this is Life, Money and Love. Just quickly before we get started, guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast, can I please ask that you consider leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you've been listening. It really helps the podcast grow. All right, we have Joe's former boss in the in the studio today, uh, Lauren Oak. So she's the CEO of Megaphone Marketing, which is one of Australia's biggest and fastest growing digital marketing agencies. I think 32 on the Deloitte, Fast 50 mm -hmm. um, in the tech space. So really exciting there. Now, Lauren's been with the company for six years. Um, and why I think this story is such an inspiration and why I think so many people will be able to get value out of it, not only her knowledge base in the area of marketing and, and entrepreneurship and building a team, but the fact that she was able to go from, she's been there, as I said, six years, but in the space of three years, she went from junior account manager to CEO of the company. Um, so I think that's something that I'd love to hear about how you got to that point, everything you've learned along the way. Um, and then we'll talk about some more marketing related stuff probably towards the end, because I'd love to get your take on some things. But really, I just want to unpack the journey for you, Lauren, how you got where you are today and kind of everything that's progressed from your life. Um, but first of all, thank you for coming. I know you're based down in Melbourne. You're only up in Sydney for a little bit of time. So appreciate you sharing your, your, your time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. And yeah, I think huge congrats to you as well and your success. Mm, thank you. I think you. coming from the e-commerce space, it is really, really cool to see that story. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing about e-com, like it can change lives. You don't need a whole massive budget. You mm -hmm. can start agency or, or product-based business. You can start from your bedroom of your house. If you have a couple hundred bucks, if you want to be drop shipping, or you, if you just want to start an agency, you, you need barely any resources. So it's been such an awesome change in the, in the business landscape over the last five to 10 years. Because before when I was a kid, I felt like you needed a lot of money or investment or a loan from the bank to start a business. And it's just not the case anymore. Obviously, as you would see how many new e-com clients I'm sure megaphone has signed over the last couple of years particularly since the covid boom so funny to call that a boom but anyway um so i want to chat about what you were like before megaphone and how you found your way there so were you the type of kid that was always interested in business and marketing or what, what were you interested as a kid yeah i was really interested in advertising i think i found that world really cool like i think coming from watching tv shows when i was younger like that was the the cool job that you could have um, I remember going through like even primary school, I'd create like little businesses. Mm -hmm. So um, this is ridiculous, but I used to sell like rocks painted in nail polish okay. to my friends. Whatever, um, so whatever that, it takes. that was it. my, my first business idea uh, as a kid. And then, yeah, just going through university, it was more focused around design and marketing mm -hmm. um, was, was my background. But I think that it really gives you a lot of depth if, if you're looking at something outside of, of you know, what your career is going to be in. Um, so yeah, really always had that mind, always very wildly impatient, wanted things to work quickly, wanted to know what was going to happen. Um, and I think that's followed me all the way through. Um, and you said going to uni, what did you study at uni? What was your degree? So it was industrial design mm -hmm. um, and some marketing as well. And what do you think was the biggest thing that you learned or took away from the whole university experience? I think, well, my degree was very practical. So it was very solutions focused you had to build a product whether it was like a tree house or I was building a lamp or making things out of cardboard or paper like you always had a solution that you would come up with um, so I think being very practical and being able to think something through and, and how it works I think that's a skill that is really relevant in so many areas of life yeah absolutely and I think as well just as someone who's um, started a business and you start to think about what type of people you'd want to bring into your team Obviously, you want, want someone with amazing attitude, um, someone that's, that buys into the vision of the business. But one of the things as well that's um, as someone who's, who's tried to build a team or has built a team, like the, the biggest thing, the biggest asset a team member can have is like the like solution focus and the pragmatic thinkers. When, a, when an issue comes up, it's not – you don't respond as, oh, crap, what do we do here? The best thing I can say, and I'm sure it's for you with, with your team, if something problem comes up or an issue – 
um, someone bringing to say, okay, this has happened. Here's two or three options what we can do to fix it rather than just here's a problem. What do we do? I'm telling you, it is the best sign for me and an employee when they can do that. But what's your take on that? 100%. I think my favourite problems are the ones that are solved before they get to me. Mm. Um, often I'll, I'll be doing something and then there'll be a group Slack message going back and forth. Then I jump in at the end and I'm like, great. They've, it's already done. It's already been solved. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, great work. And, and that's about it. But yeah, I think that problem mindset, problem solving mindset is just so important. Like I think my job day to day is just a series of problems and how fast I can solve them. Mm. And I absolutely love that. Mm. Um, 100%. That's the thing. When you're, when you're the CEO, when you're, when you're the founder of the business, half of your day at least is just solving problems. And particularly, I've never had a, a team as big as yours. Um, so imagine it's all solving problems when it's over 100 people, uh, bigger team, more problems. Um, but okay, from uni, you went where I know you spent some time working over in New York. Was that straight after university? or? Yeah, so I'd been in Wellington, New Zealand, uh, population like 400,000 people um, for my whole life and wanted to do the complete opposite. So went over to New York, uh, worked in an analytics company there. So it was more content marketing, native advertising. And yeah, I think that's really where it, something sparked in me, like the energy in New York. Have you been to New York? I love New York. Yeah. It's just, you can't even describe it. I don't even think I could describe it while I was there. As soon as I left, I was like, oh, something's missing. Um, yeah. And like that energy that the city built, it was so, everything was so competitive. Everybody is walking with a place to go. It's so much more fast paced. And I think that that's really where I, really where I start to, started to build my career. You know? Yeah, I 100% can relate to that. Like New York, I really understand um, the saying, it's like, if you like, just, I understand why everyone feels like just to get into hustle mode, into grind mode. When you go there, like you said, everyone's has a purpose. Everyone's there to, to chase some sort of a dream. You know what I mean? And I just remember being there and feeling so inspired just to work, but not in like a unhealthy way. I just want to grind myself into the ground. I just felt really uplifted and excited to work and the possibilities that were possible. Like you realize when you're in New York, anything's possible. Like you, you're not missing out on anything being in New York City. The biggest and best things are going on there. And I remember leaving as well and coming back to Sydney. And I was just like, I need to chase. I need to get that feeling back somehow. If you could bottle the feeling that New York City gives you and put it in like a supplement and take it every day, it, you'd, be, you'd be a billionaire. I can guarantee it. Yeah, I think you're just on 1.2 speed yeah. constantly. Um, I think like I walk at such a weirdly fast pace as mm. well. Like everyone here is always like, slow down. Where, what are you doing? We're just going for a walk. I've got to get somewhere. We've got to get there faster. Mm. But I think in New York, that energy is just standard. Yeah. I, I'm, the, I'm, I'm a very fast paced energy inside and outside of my body. So that I, I actually feel like quite relaxed in New York. But you mentioned you, you worked in like a, a company that was like a more of an analytics company. Do you, do you like identify more as like a creative person or an analytic? I know you'll need both to be a CEO, but where do you think your strength uh, lies? I think I have a balance of both. I think through high school, I always excelled in maths. I don't know if I particularly enjoyed it, but I always did really well at it. But I really enjoyed the art side. So I, would, I was just always in the art studio there. Um, but math is something that I didn't really have to put too much effort in, but it j just came naturally. Um, so I think being able to have that balance has enabled me to excel in this, in this field because really it is a combination of looking at data, interpreting data, and then analyzing creatives. And when you were in New York and it was time to come home, or well, you obviously came to Melbourne, it was to Australia. What was the like the thinking then? Did you know you were going to come to Melbourne? Were you thinking of going home? What made you um, leave? Well, for a New Zealander, you have a year visa, and pretty hard to get anything else. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wasn't ready to go home. And going home to Wellington, where it is a little bit slower. Um, I just wasn't ready for that. And so Melbourne, in terms of advertising and marketing, is a leader. So that was where I ended up. Didn't have a job, rocked up with minimal money at this yeah. point as well because I'd just been in New York and that's where I <laughs> spent it all. Um, and yeah, within a within a couple of months, I was I was at Megaphone. Where did you live in New York? Because it's so expensive to live in New York. Oh, it's so expensive. I lived in the East Village. Mm. So I was like, if I'm going to be here, you, I'm going to live exactly where I want to yeah, live yeah. and I'm just going to eat bagels. $1.50 bagels, dollar sliced pizza. Survive on that. Yeah, but the thing is, it's worth it. When you're in New York, you sustain off something else. You don't need proper food. You just live off the energy. I love it. All right, so you're in Melbourne. Did you do many interviews before Megaphone? I, I heard that you were like one of the last people to interview. Is almost finished the interview process when you when you rocked up. Yeah, I remember sending in my I, – I sent out a couple of CVs. I was looking at different grad programs I, I, uh, entering into Melbourne. But, yeah, Megaphone really stood out. I think it was more of an established role that I was looking at. 
Um, and yeah, I was the last applicant. Max had sort of closed off all of the, Max is the, the founder of the company. He'd closed off all the applications and I came through and he's like, all right, well, we'll push you through if you can get it back quickly. It's like, done. you'll have it back. Because <laughs> um, there's a challenge and everything involved in it. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, one thing I really want to get um, your, your take on and your opinion on, um, just to get your insight, as, as someone that started, as I said, junior account manager within three years, you were CEO of the company. I imagine there was a series of um, promotions to get to that point, how does someone go about getting promotion? If someone's working for a company, whether it be an agency or, or otherwise, and they're looking for that progression, what can people do to, you know, push their, like not wait for a tap on the shoulder? What can people do to, I know you've spoken about going above and beyond the job description, but how can people make themselves stand out and earn a, a promotion? I think it's not even just going above and beyond the job description. I think I absolutely threw that out the window and I was like, what can I do here? What is the end goal? The end goal is to grow as a business, you know, to get great results with clients. And so I just got creative with what that meant. So bringing different things into the business, like an internship program um, that enabled me to practice things like management before I was ready for it. Um, I ran industry events. I not quite sure how I managed this, but I had a paneled event with some incredible speakers on it um, and had about a hundred people attend. And that was just from me manually one by one emailing them through my email account, inviting them to this event that I was running um, looking back now, I'm like, it's hard to get people to events. We're, we're doing a series of them again now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's not easy. So it was just a tireless effort to, to get people to, to make this work. I think it was just showing that I was there for Megaphone and for the reason that Megaphone wanted to exist rather than just there for a paycheck or there to tick the boxes in my role. That's the biggest thing I think you alluded to. It's adding value to the company. And if you can think like that, then you're going to be you're going to be a massive asset, and if they're any sort of good leadership, they're going to see that and they're going to want to reward that. Like that's the thing. Like as someone who like high high staff, it's like you want them to succeed. Like you want like because that that's the thing. If your staff succeeds, inevitably you succeed. So I don't care about taking the credit or any of the good ideas for anyone on a team. Like the better ideas you can have and the more fun you can have and creativity, it's going to benefit me and the business as a whole. So what are some ways you like? I know I'm just putting you on the spot here, some practical ways that you feel like you mentioned one example that you did creating the internship program. Was that something that Max asked you to do or you just came up with the idea yourself? No, it was more, uh, I would go away and make plans on the things that I wanted to learn or the skills that I wanted to, um, I guess, bring into my skill set and partnered it with what I knew we needed for the business. And I think if you can show that synergy between what you need in your career for your growth and what the business needs, if you can find that that middle path, then everybody's going to win in that scenario. You're more motivated to do it because it's what you want, but then the business obviously is going to see success from that. Yeah, I love I love that. I, everyone wins in that situation. So what I was going to ask to put you on the spot is, do you have any other examples or practical uh, ideas that people could do to come up with ways to, you know, help the business that might be a little bit out of the box, either just something off the top of your head or something that some of your team have done over the last few years that stood out and you're like, wow, I love that idea, like really showed initiative and impressed me. Yeah, I think even just the way you're presenting the idea is quite important. You know, it's not just a, oh, we're chatting in the kitchen. Oh, I thought about doing this. Mm. It's, you know, I've had people present to me uh, like a presentation on, I think it was launching branding into Megaphone. And it was going through the ways that we could sell it, why we should sell it, the uplift we could get, clients we could upsell onto it, pricing examples for it. And so it wasn't just an idea that I was going to have to come in and put time into, into it was this is done do I want to provide a budget or provide yes basically on mm. that so I think it's just making it really easy um, and I think showing that it's not going to impact you know what you are doing in your day-to-day role um, and I mean the ideas that you can have are probably very relevant to the the role that you're in but just anything that can add value you know uh, yeah that's such a great example um so you're talking about these head of departments coming to you with these ideas like to, to improve their um, – because you've worked in, across all – pretty much all of the, the key areas in Megaphone, right? You were in sales, marketing. What, what, is, like, what, are, what are the different um, like hats you wore on the way up to, to CEO? Yeah, so I started in the account side, so managing the accounts and then started managing the team from there. Then I moved through to sales. That was actually a sort of a happenstance, um, ended up there. Um, never in my life would I have thought that sales would be somewhere I would end up. Marketing, that's where I wanted to go. But sales is completely out of my pathway. Um, I ended up there because I knew it was the right thing for Megaphone. Um, and I knew that I would give it absolutely everything. 
Um, so I read a couple of books over the weekend on a Monday. <laughs> I was sales manager. Um, so sales, I think, has been the most interesting part. And I think it's made me develop so much as a person as well. So, I mean, outside of sales, I've been across the HR side. I'm still doing a lot of the hiring. Um, I think those are the most important conversations to bring the best people into the company. Um, but I did the finances for a while as well. I think I've covered all of the all the possible areas. Talk to me about sales. Um, sales was something I um, I did for a couple of years before before I started Happy Skin. Um, and it's never something that I saw myself doing either. Um, and I had some really great experiences and some really not so enjoyable experiences in sales. But tell me, like, what did you learn about yourself doing sales? Because everyone, when you're doing sales, particularly if it's like, I don't know how you guys work, but if it's anything cold or outbound calling, like it's rough and, and, and it thickens your skin and you, I feel like it's, if you have the natural uh, ability in terms of your natural skill sets and talents, it can be quite, I don't want to make it like, Easy might not be the right word. It can be quite easy, let's say, to become good at sales, but then to become great at sales, there is such a massive gap in between. Okay, just being a nice, personable person can have a good conversation and maybe have um, some persuasion, but then to take that to being a really skilled salesperson, the gap from from my experience in watching watching how people do it, it's it's really big and it's all process driven and just how you manage your pipeline of, of priorities. Cause when you're in sales, there's so many things that you could be doing. So many people you could be following up on. And it, I always found back then in my career, I was like 23, 24. One of the things I've always struggled with naturally, cause it, it isn't in my natural skill sets was like organization and structure where I always had the energy and enthusiasm, but in sales, you can't get too far with just that and none of the, the other side. Yeah. So I think, Jumping into sales, looking at, I guess you need that energy, but you also need to have that process. I think from me jumping into sales, I was actually able to build that process. So I'm not very good with, I'm good at following processes, but I, I, I'm not going to put my time into it. That's not what I enjoy. I've recently done um, disc assessments. Have you ever done yep. that uh, for the whole leadership team? And so now I know my weaknesses. Um, <laughs> ID, high I, low S, low C. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, in sales, you are going to naturally have that energy. And it's about being able to build that solid process that you can follow without even thinking. And, you know, we want our sales team to have ID, high I, you know, be very dominant, be very confident, be very competitive in those conversations. But we don't want it to take a really long time to put together a pitch, which is you know, where you need to have a really strong process in place. Mm. So I think from me jumping into it rather than looking from the outside and trying to build a process, actually understanding the problems that were coming up and just being put outside of my comfort zone has been the, the biggest growth that I could have seen. Mm. And then moving into like your, your, your role as a CEO, there's so many things I want to ask. Um, first thing as well, as someone who's been in the agency land for six years, just interested to get your opinion. Why do you think so many, not, not every agency, obviously, but why do you think sometimes like agencies have a bad rap? What do you think makes a bad agency? I mean, you can definitely have a bad agency, but I also think not every brand is going to see success through digital marketing. You know, you need to have a really strong foundation, a good product, an actual need for a product. I think that's the most challenging thing is you can't just sell a product if nobody has that need to buy a product. So there's always going to be, there's always going to be businesses that won't work online. But I think, you know, there are a lot of ways you can cut corners as an agency. So, you know, I've heard of agencies that are outsourcing everything. And if you have people running your campaigns that aren't actually living and breathing the country that you're living in or trying to sell to, then it can be a little bit difficult to actually understand that. Mm. Um, so, you know, we try to make sure that, you know, I mean, nothing is outsourced, but I think that's a really good distinction. That This is one of the things I think I've, I've spoken to the guys about this. One of the things that um grinds my gears the most right i'm all for people starting businesses i'm absolutely supportive of that but there's this one type of agency model that people talk about and it's oh you can start an agency with zero experience right and all you need to do is essentially you're a salesperson and it's like okay you'd be like yes this is dylan mullen agency i can do xyz all these things right and you say great can you help me with building a website and running facebook ads sure of course i can and they'll go find people a fiverr if I found that people were outsourcing my work to, to some other person, like not that it's a problem in another country, but you're acting like this is your team and this is what you do and you're just outsourcing to all these random people. I, if I found that out, I would never, ever work with that agency again. And there's so many agencies built like that. Like there's certain things you can 
outsource, but like running someone's ads and building their campaigns in their account is just yeah. copywriting as well. Copywriting you know, that's something that needs to be very emotive. It mm-hmm. needs to be in in you know, the country or in the words of what you would would say to your client or to your customers. Yeah, and like I, I understand that's the cost effective way to do it, and and there's some certain skills that yeah, sure that is fine. But just like the trust that a brand needs, like the biggest thing for me working with a, an agency partner needs to be trust. And like for me, it's, it's like results is, is obviously is super important, but do you enjoy working with them? Do you, do you trust that they actually have your back and care about like the vision and the goals of the brand itself? Um, it's yeah. really relationship building. And that's the same as if they were a team member. If you didn't have a strong relationship or have strong trust with them, you wouldn't want them running. So you need to have that trust with an agency and it's, about going in, like actually just getting to know them. They should know your product better than you know your product mm-hmm. and how you can sell it. Um, I find it quite interesting as well when people come to us with a product, like this is our product, this is exactly how we should sell it. Like we could do that or we could actually research it and we can look at all the data and actually present to you who your customer is. Mm-hmm. So I think it's there's a bit of back and forth or from both ways there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, now I want to speak about the changing uh, – how much your role has changed over the years. Now, I know a question you would get asked all the time because I'm interested, but I know as someone who's like ran, ran a business for a number of years, there's no such thing as a typical day, right? But currently with like with 110 staff, what what does like a typical day or week look like? What are some of the things? Because just people are interested. Like what someone our age, late 20s, I imagine, um, running a, a CEO as a company, only took three years to get there. People want to know what actually a CEO does. I don't know what a CEO does at a hundred person company. I'm curious genuinely. So are you, you mentioned solving problems, but what, what is, what is the CEO's responsibility of a company with over a hundred staff? So, I mean, if you're looking at a, a typical week, uh, some things that I might do, I'm doing interviews at the moment for senior roles. So there's a lot of, a lot of time that goes into that. So looking at disc assessments, which I just mentioned before, they're really great to understand who this person is naturally going to be, how they're going to fit into the team, how they're going to complement everybody. So we've been spending a bit of time on that recently. So there's the hiring side, the operational side. So at the moment, looking at the company structure. So more the leadership structure, who should be reporting to, to who, how do we group the leaders? So that might be like a, a two, three hour planning session with the current heads of departments to figure out how we're going to get the most out of the team we have, what gaps do we have, who do we need to hire, um, a lot of networking events. So this half of the year, it's always very busy in terms of networking. Um, so going to different breakfasts, listening to different panels, partnership meetings. So looking at different you know, apps for Shopify that we can partner with um, and we can use that to support our clients. Um, I'll jump in on a client meeting. I'll jump in on a sales pitch. We will, I'll work on, just thinking what I've done the last week, uh, you know, working on things like a, a volunteer program for all of our offices, uh, looking at policies like our maternity leave, what should that look like, um, researching different softwares that might come through to see if we can build efficiency into anything we're doing. Meetings with Max, the founder, meetings with Arjun, who is the CEO of the USA, arm of the office uh, of, of Megaphone, meetings with the UK office sure that that's running, hosting team meetings. Uh, we actually had a really cool session with one of our, um, I think it's one of our idols, Dara Denny. She's a um, she's an incredible uh, marketer, very heavy on the creative side. She actually came and did a presentation virtually to the company this week. Christmas party. Um, yeah. So it's just really business improvement and opportunity ma- like management across all facets of the business, right? Yeah. I mean, there's the boring stuff as well, like writing role descriptions, uh, admin, HR processes, uh, all of that as well. But What do you, um, like how much of, the, of your focus as a CEO goes into building culture? Culture is a huge focus. Um, I think a few years ago it was even more of a focus because that was building a really strong foundation. Through COVID, it was a massive focus because how do you build a culture when everybody's at home in their bedrooms working? Um, so it's been a big focus there making sure that we're bringing the culture through the other offices as well. So we've got Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, UK and US. And so ensuring that we're, we have the same values, um, making sure that we're always driving the vision of where we want to be going for the company so that everybody's really aligned. So it's a huge part of it, making sure that we're 
doing things in nine to five is really where I define culture. It's not just, you know, Friday drinks. It's, you know, what can we do in between the hours of nine to five to actually help someone grow and develop in their career and actually feel fulfilled in what they're doing. And you, you mentioned you've done and you still do quite a bit of the hiring. What are you looking for when, when you're hiring someone, whether it be a more of an entry to mid-level role or a senior role? What, what, what are the things that you look for in a good hire? Someone that has drive and motivation to succeed in whatever they do. Um, because if somebody is motivated to do their best work, whatever you put in front of them, they're going to be able to find the best way that they can do that. They're going to be coming up with you know, great ideas. So we will look at experience, but it's not the most important thing. I think it's that mindset, that attitude that you have to, to win, to be successful. That is really important. Do you have like a favorite interview question you ask? Um, I don't want to give it away. Um, <laughs> the secret's coming out. I like to ask like a practical question that's completely out of the box. So, for example, it could be how many cars do you think there are in Australia? Okay. And so you need to – like how is that person going to explain it? You know, if, if you say that to someone and they sit there and dare in headlights, yeah. you know, that's what's going to happen in their work day when something comes up. Do you know up. the actual answer? I do know the answer. Let me guess. All right. So 25 million people, 26 million people. This is what I'm looking for, this like rationalization okay, of – how many are adults? Probably like 70%. I'd gonna guess not everyone has come. So eight million. How many? About eighteen. Oh, oh yeah, people have multiple cars. Yeah. But my cousin has like eight cars. Think about all the rental cars, the taxis. Yeah, Ubers. true. Fuck, I'm not gonna yeah. job a megaphone. It's too far <laughs> off. No, <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, in the scale of things, yeah. that one's close. I've okay. had billions. I've okay. had just a hundred thousand. Yeah, I've I like, had maybe ten, maybe the, uh, eighteen million cars. Interesting. Which is actually the number I said to Max wow. on the phone. Yeah, um, I'm sure that helped me get hired mm. initially. That's cool. I love that. And I know you've spoken about, talk to me about why you feel, and I 100% agree with this, that attitude is more, more important than the skill that they have on the day that they show up. You could have whatever skill you wanted, but if you don't have the dedication or commitment to actually put time into it and actually fulfill that, that skill, then it's going to go nowhere. Mm. And as someone who's done a lot of interviews what are some things not to do for someone looking to get a new job or a promotion in an interview? Because, yeah, like just you see a lot when you interview a lot of people and I definitely haven't interviewed as many people as you. So what stands out as things people like not to do in an interview for a new role? Uh, the most rogue one I have had is someone was filling their car up with petrol um, while, while I was interviewing them. <laughs> so I would say don't do that. But on a more serious note, I think coming in really prepared, I think – a lot of people in an interview will just sit there and wait for the questions. But if you can make that a conversation, it shows who you are going to be. You're going to be contributing both ways on the conversation, especially when you're looking for people that might be client-facing in like an account management role or in sales role. I think one of my uh, one of my pet peeves is when people ask questions that are on the homepage of the website. Mm -hmm. You know, ask a question that you can't Google. Ask a question that you can't find have done your research and, you know, go into that question with a bit of background as to why you're asking it. I think there can be too much of just like a sitting there waiting and then yeah. just like pump through three questions, then get out of there. Yeah. And don't just like ask questions for the sake of asking questions because no. they can tell. But that's a really good point you made. I, um, I think I used to do that um, because I'm just naturally like a chatty guy. But like I've never heard someone say that in an interview. It's actually a good thing to like make it a conversation. Don't just say it and then go back into your shell, actually open that up. Because looking back now and having like the best interviews I've done with people and the ones that like you leave the room feeling like, wow, I really like that person that seems like they understand it is like it's when they're just confident in themselves to have a conversation, chat, not too nervous about, oh my God, I'm, I'm getting asked questions and forget that it's a, a two-way street. So I really, I really, really like that. Um, I want to ask you another question about how you mentioned your role changes as the company grows. What what do the nuances look like, like becoming a CEO of like a 20 person team versus like a 50 or a hundred? How does it, how does it change and how do you have to adapt your skill set? So as a 20 person company, I can turn around and I can talk to everybody mm -hmm. in one room. Everyone's on the same page. It's very easy to be aligned because you're all in one room. You know, if something goes wrong, you're, everyone overhears that conversation. Um, when you're in a company of a hundred or, or more than that, are in different rooms. People are now working from home. We have different offices. So the lines of communication have to be incredibly clear. Expectations have to be set much stronger. 
processes are a lot more important. When we're a 20 person company, the process could be, hey, Lauren, what do I do with this? And that worked. Whereas like a hundred person company, you need to have a, a go-to place where people know where they can find everything. Having a strong CRM is incredibly important where everything can be stored. Good filing systems and Google Drive. Um, all of all of the background stuff that makes the company work, that becomes so much more important. And what do you think is the most uh, or the biggest thing that you've realized about yourself becoming a CEO and what you've learned over the last three years? I think as I get further into my career, I keep, I realize that you know, everyone is just trying their best. And I think, you know, going through, maybe it was a little bit of imposter syndrome. I was like, why should I be making this decision? Um, but, you know, as long as you're going into decisions, making sure that you can be learning from the outcome, I think I've become a lot more confident with just going with what I initially think rather than second guessing. Mm. Uh, that's an important one. Yeah. Do you tend to make decisions I mean, it sounds lazy when some people say make decisions from your gut, but you can make decisions from your gut. You can do the, you can do the research a lot of the time. It gets to a certain point. You just need to pull the trigger on a, on a certain thing and you can get analysis paralysis. And when you look into things too much, I found that often you won't always make the best decision anyway, because you get clouded. And then if you think about it too much, you put additional pressure on yourself. And I feel like you don't think clearly. I feel like 90% of the time, your first instinctual um, gut, gut feeling is the right one. Yeah, so I would have that. I would try and back it up with data mm -hmm. or prove myself correct. Yeah. Um, we do have a lot of department heads now as well. So if it's, I would be roundtabling that, stress testing it a little bit. Um, what I actually like to do is stress test it with a random selection of people from the company. So juniors, mids, different roles, data, creative, whatever. Get them in a room, let them know the idea, let them know the plan or what we want to do, the change we want to make, and then just get their idea. Because realistically... I mean, my company specifically, it's a people company. You know, the product is the people. And so I want to understand how that is actually going to sit with this group of you know, people from all different parts of the company. There are going to be areas that they would see day to day that I can't look at. So rather than just going in and making that decision because I feel like it's right, I can go and present it, but then also make sure that everyone's on board with it. Yeah, that's the, that's the balancing act, right, as well. How do you manage that? How do you manage having ideas and getting feedback from, from a lot of different people and then conflicting feedback. When you get that, that's something that I've realized. And if I'm, when I take something to the team, I've, I'm still working out the best way to get feedback on a certain specific thing, particularly with creative, creative because creative is such a um, individual thing. Everyone's going to have different feelings. How do you go when you, you take, let's just say like you take an idea to, to five different people and you get like four or five different opinions how do you then take that information and then go and make a decision based off that? I think when I'm presenting it initially, it's really explaining the why. Um, and I think the the why is incredibly important because it's not just presenting an idea and be like, what do you think? It's, you know, this is why, this is the problem that I have, this is the solution that I've come up with, how can we adapt that? Mm. Um, but, I mean, sometimes you do get a lot of conflicting ideas and then that's then my job to take those ideas away and stress test those um, and see which ones are going to have the biggest impact, you know, if one's low risk, one's high risk, you, you, maybe I try the low risk first, depending on depending on what the problem is. And I just asked you, what's one of the black biggest like, things you've learned about yourself? What's what's one of the biggest things you've learned about people and people management? Because obviously, like one of the most important parts of your role, communication is the most important part. But I think a little bit deeper on that is feedback and getting feedback from above and below. I mean, it sounds so simple, but me providing very quick direct feedback to somebody if I think that there's something that we need to talk about or that there's an improvement that they could make. The more I can do that and keep that open, the more that they will do that back to me as well. That's something we're actually working on in the leadership team at the moment is feedback doesn't always need to come through me. Sit someone down and, and, and chat through that feedback. I think the more that you can build that open line of communication, feedback, you build more trust and then you can actually be a lot more productive and you know that the way that someone's going to think before you're talking to them. And is that something you've always been naturally quite good at being comfortable enough to have these potentially uncomfortable conversations with someone on the spot? Definitely not. Definitely um, not. <laughs> so uncomfortable. Um, no, but a, a while ago I wasn't. And, you know, I have read countless business books and multiple courses, I speak to coaches all the time. Like this is something that comes up all the time. So over the past few years, I've definitely become a lot better at it. Um, but, you know, it's it's not comfortable going into a conversation with someone when you're going to tell them that you, know, you don't like something that they've done or the way they naturally handle conversations isn't great. You know, it's difficult. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's ever going to be a pleasant 
thing that you need to do, but the more open you can be about it and the more open you are to receiving that feedback, you know, you're going to learn things about yourself and then it's not so bad if it's a two-way street. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you just mentioned working with coaches and stuff. Have you had mentors along the way? Like what do you, who do you lean on and what things do you lean on to help you succeed and, and continue to grow um, both personally and professionally? Yeah, so I've worked with a, a number of different coaches um, and Max, the founder, is so he lives in America now. He is a great mentor as well. But I have different mentors for different things. So there's an online platform called Mentor Pass and basically you can just pay to speak to different mentors around the globe um, with different different experience levels and different things. And so if I'm looking at a particular area of the business that I want to develop or you know maybe we're looking at organizational structure, you can actually go in there and find people that have experience in these areas. I'll speak to three people, take them through my ideas. They'll give me a thousand more ideas or you know put me on the right track. And that's really helpful because these people have gone through this again. You know, a lot of, you know, as the company's grown so quickly, you know, I haven't, hadn't been a CEO of a 30 person company or a 50 yeah. or a hundred person company, whereas there are people that have. And so being really, being very comfortable with getting help from other people and being aware that you don't know everything. Yeah. And that's the biggest uh, strength someone can have on the journey um, is like being like removing the ego and being comfortable to ask for help. Because if you can ask for help, find mentors, coaches, even just messaging someone on Instagram that's done something you want to do, you'd be surprised how willing a lot of people are to help. Um, it's such an important, it's such like it just cuts down the amount of time it will take because you're leveraging the lessons that these people have gone, these people have had through their lives and what they've learned about themselves in their journey. So I know for me, learning from mentors and people that have um, done the things that I want to do specific to my sort of goals, like I think it's important to align yourself with not just anyone that, is successful just because, but like you said, if you have a certain problem with organizational structures, you go to someone that understands organizational structures. If you wanted to go to someone for, for branding, I'm sure you'd go to someone that understands that really picking your mentors and coaches. I feel like based around what you, who you are and what your goals are is really important because we live in a day that there's so many gurus out there, you know, like there'll be someone that's had one business made $10,000 and now is a business coach. Um, so just identifying who the right people for you to work with is, can be like so beneficial to, to cut down the amount of time it takes to get where you're going. And I want to get into that mindset because someone like yourself obviously has achieved a, a lot of success in the business world in a relatively short amount of time. I want to get inside the way you think so people can start to identify some of the habits that you've um, created or some of the things that you've done to be able to facilitate this growth for yourself. So how do you approach mindset? What does mindset mean to you and personal development? So personal development and mindset is, has, personal development has always been very important to me. I think mindset is a journey that I've been on over the past couple of years. Um, I do read a lot of books. And so I think when I want to become an expert on a topic, I will just start to read as many books as I can on that topic. Um, so having a really strong mindset for me, I've, ident I've recently identified this as having control over my day and what I'm doing. Um, because I think when you have a busy role, you can sometimes just get there and just like let it take you where it does. And then, okay, cool, it's 5 p.m. I should wrap things up. Whereas having control, even having control over your morning. So like the time I wake up, I like to control that. What, what am I doing in the morning? Um, I've recently read 5 a.m. Club. I'm not sure if you've read that. It's a book. Principle is getting up at 5 a.m. I don't get up at 5 a.m. But there are really some strong core principles out of that book where it's like own your morning and elevate your life. And so every morning making sure that I can do some form of exercise, I can learn something and I can practice some form of mindfulness. And so that would take, you know, an hour, an hour and a half. And going into your day, you have already ticked all of those boxes. So you're entering your work day in a really positive mindset from that point then you now have control over what you want to do in your day. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's still mornings that I roll out of bed and go straight to work. But I, I notice the difference that I'm not in control of my day at that point. And you're just sort of letting it take you where it goes. But if you can even just scheduling things in your calendar or like, you know, how you want your day to happen, that to me sets me up really well. And has your morning routine developed over the years? Like you said, you've added some more things in recently. Yeah. So my morning, I'm, not a morning person. So for me getting up at 6am, that's, that's like a big progress yeah, for me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, over the past year, that's been sort of the development and the you know, going through the stage from like waking up and being tired and it just takes a couple of weeks to get through that. Mm. 
And so I feel so much better having achieved something um, before work and then also making sure that you do sort of the same thing after work. Yeah, I've, um, I actually just changed my morning routine um, probably two or three months ago now. I used to do it the way you do it. Um, I'd wake up at like, yeah, six, just before six, quarter to six. And I'd spend honestly like two hours on, on my morning routine. Like I would meditate, I would stretch, I would read. Um, I do martial arts, I do some of my forms and stuff. And then like I'd, I'd, I'd start working after that. And I did that for two, three years. And then it just got to the point, I, I, one of the, do you know Alex Omozzi? I'm sure you yeah. would have seen his stuff. Love him. I love him as well. He's like an absolute genius when it comes to sales and marketing and business. Um, and I heard him say this thing. It's like, oh, your op- the optimal morning routine is just waking up and working as soon as you can. And I remember I was uh, chatting up to someone about it on the podcast. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't really agree with that. Because I said, like, I want to come in feeling good, blah, blah, blah. And I thought about it for a little while. I'm like, fuck, well, I really do rate Alex, right? Like, <laughs> let me give it a go. And as much as I'm not necessarily a morning person either, I was always like doing my best work at 11 p.m. at night and, and stuff like that. I started it and yeah, it definitely was hard waking up. But what I felt like if I can wake up and start working at 5.30, the first half an hour, 45 minutes, I'm telling you, I'm not doing my best work. I'm like, I'm, uh, let me set up and plan the day because I'm not firing on all cylinders. But then once I've woken up from about 6.30, I'm fully awake. The amount of work I get done between like 6.30 and 10 a.m., it's just, it's so much more peaceful. It's so much more quiet. I feel like I'm getting ahead in my day. So then I actually stop at like 10 and then I'll do my mini morning routine then. And that's been a massive game changer for me because I feel like no matter what happens in my day and being uh, like a business owner that has like people going to be asking me things and problems come up with different businesses that I'm involved in. It's like no matter what happens from, from here on out, I've at least achieved the most important things. Like I've got my three or four hours of most important things done. Um, and that's really changed the game for me. But like I said before, I would have sworn by, no, I want to do my two hour morning routine every day. So it's just interesting. Like what I'm always interested to hear what other people do and what makes them, cause all we want to do is get the best out of ourselves. Right. Yeah. That that's the thing. Um, and how about sleep? How many hours of sleep do you get as a CEO? Um, I mean, there's lying in bed and then there's sleep. I think it takes me a while to get to sleep. I'm still working on that, that half of it. Um, I'm, Minimum of six. Yeah. So like there's – because this misconception that CEOs have to like have four or five hours sleep. Six hours, I don't think I could live off six hours every single night. Sometimes I get seven. That's a good, yeah, that's a I good like night. To, I like <laughs> to get seven. I like to, anything – if I get seven, perfect. If I get seven and a half, that's like what a sleep in. Um, but I tried for ages to be like oh, I'm going to still work till 12 and wake up at like 5.30 and honestly, I feel like, yeah, you're awake for what, an, hour, an extra half an hour, an hour a day. But my work throughout the whole day just wasn't as good. I wasn't as happy. I didn't enjoy it as much. Mm, it wasn't, wasn't for me. Um, uh, let me. I've got some questions for you I want to ask um, about more like some of the marketing stuff. But before I get onto that, you've talked, I want to ask you about motivation, right? Now, you have a lot of pressure on your shoulders as a CEO of a, of a large business. First of all, how do you manage that pressure and do you feel that pressure? Yeah, I think through different different times I will feel that pressure, um, but I'm incredibly competitive. I want to win. And so I think I also thrive under that pressure. Um, and so, you know, there, there are times where I know I need to take a step back or go for a walk because there's a lot of, of pressure, but I try not to let it get to me. Um, and I think just being very conscious of it and again, having that control. So having control over recognizing if you are feeling the pressure, or if you are feeling stressed, I think if you can acknowledge it, then you can, or I can help manage that myself. And have you ever had challenges in like managing your mental health throughout the years, uh, whether it be in uni or in business? I've been very fortunate to not have any huge issues on that. Um, I definitely have had issues letting work impact my personal life or just making work my life. Um, because I enjoy it. And so I think that can be also difficult for other people to understand when it's like, you know, I am usually I'll try and work on a different project in the evening if I'm working in the evening, but that is also what I consider fun. Um, and so I think that balance, I've struggled with the balance more. Cause megaphone, do you guys, 
uh, still offer like mental health leave and stuff for your team. Tell me about that. And did, is that something recently that you guys introduced? Yeah. So in COVID, uh, that was something that we, we noticed was quite challenging. So we introduced a, I mean, through COVID, we had a lot of other initiatives as well, just to bring the team together. But yeah, so one day a quarter, we encourage some, everyone to take a mental health day. It's a day that you shouldn't use for like moving house or like, you know, going on holiday. It's a day where you should just like be at home, be with yourself and just take that reset. Um, I think it's incredibly important to do that to also make sure you are getting the most out of yourself as a person. So that's optional for people to take, but there's also a lot of other apps and like services people that can speak to that we have available as well, mm-hmm. which I think has become heightened over COVID, but it's something that we you know, realistically always should have had. Yeah. Um, you seem you seem like an incredibly naturally, uh, organically um, motivated person, right? I can feel that. I'm way you've spoken about your life and your journey is there anything that you need to do to to help you feeling motivated or is it just something that's always naturally existed within you I think it's something that's that's always uh naturally in inside me I am um, I do need a reset sometimes you know there I also need my downtime um which would be like watching friends on tv <laughs> I like to watch something where I know what's going to happen it's just winds me down um but yeah I'm just I naturally have that energy in me how about when you're um motivating your team how do you keep how do you keep such a large team motivated and then obviously on an individual level how do you keep people motivated it gets back I think on a team basis it also gets back to really clear communication um the company the employees need to understand where the company is going and why they want to be on that journey with you you know people also when you're doing one-on-one management they need to understand how what they want is connected to what you want so it's not just come to work and you know do your job. It's what do you want to get out of your career? Okay, you want to be here? Great. Well, we want this. So how do we pair that together? Um, and, you know, everyone has motivations to see themselves succeed. And so if you can partner that with your company, that's how you're going to start to motivate people. Yeah, that's exactly one of my biggest learnings as well. It's like, okay, it's on a, on a company level, where are we going and why is it exciting? What are we going to be focusing on for the next quarter or for the next year? And then individually having conversations with people about, um, so what, what realistically, where do you want to be in a year? What do you want to get out of the role? What do you want to learn? Um, because I remember when I was, this is at the start, like those are conversations when I had really no leadership experience in any sort of corporate capacity. Um, and then I've all of a sudden I've got a team of like 12 people. Some of them are older than me, um, like double my age. And I've got to try and have these conversations with people. So I feel like at times when I was younger, I shied away from having those conversations, but then Literally, if you're a business leader, you're only shooting yourself in the foot because you're avoiding those conversations isn't changing the fact that these, these people want that. And in fact, it's going to make it more likely that they will end up not being so happy or we want to leave. So having those conversations and understanding what their goals are and if you can make it aligned with the company goals, if you can't, at least you know and you have an opportunity to do your best and you can plan for the future. But just trying to ignore that and hoping everyone's just going to buy in just because I'm paying them every week. It's not, it's not how it is. There's a lot of opportunity out there like – especially now there's a talent shortage. Like if you're a good worker, like I'm sure there's tons of companies that would want to snap you up. So making sure that you can keep your employees as tied to the business, like their personal goals tied to the vision and the future of the business um, is definitely what I've learned as well as the most important or the most effective way at um, keeping people motivated and just having like a great, because talk about culture as well. Like Culture is something like I can be friends with everyone, but that's not really a good culture. It's like, is everyone really happy and satisfied and fulfilled coming into work every day? Um, and if that's the case, I feel like that's going to like do the biggest, go take the further step in like creating a good culture, right? Yeah. And I think so many people say like, oh, it's about the money, but it, it isn't. If you are happy and you're enjoying your role, then that is worth more than anything. And so to be able to create a culture where people can enjoy their role and it is so much about that fulfillment, like you just said, not happiness. You know, you can be happy anywhere. But are you fulfilled in what you're actually doing? Yeah, happiness is like I can go to the beach with my friends and I'll be happy. But if I, let's just say I, I had a ridiculous amount of money, I never, never wanted to work, never needed to work another day in my life. Like I'm, I'm yeah, I'll go traveling and I'll do all that. But after a little while, I'm like, even though it has nice, it is sitting on nice beaches, sipping on cocktails, um, you're going to get over just doing that one thing. But if you can find a purpose in what you're doing and a, and a greater goal or a greater vision, that's going to really, in my opinion, long-term be able to fuel you and, and, and fuel your action to make it happen. 
Absolutely. And I think every person needs to have that as well. Everyone needs to understand what they're working towards. And it's it would be my job as well if they don't know what they're working towards or where they want to go in their career. Let's find out what that is. Like when I first started at Megaphone, I remember we were in the back of an Uber on the way to like one of my first client meetings and um, the founder was like, you know, what do you want? You know, what do you want to be doing in a few years? I was like, oh, I would like to be in a C-suite role. And I was like, I was like okay, cool. Well, let's make it happen. I was like, okay. Yep. Um, and he took that really seriously. And I think I was very fortunate to have someone that took that seriously. And yeah, within a few years, I was there. So how do you set your goals? Because clearly you, you both on an individual level and on the company level, like you've achieved some lofty growth targets. How do you set your goals? By reviewing what we've done and then seeing where we want to go from there. I think reviewing what we have, reviewing our weaknesses. Um, often my goals will come from my weaknesses or areas that I think I can improve the most on personally, but also for the company as well. Um, so that's not just me setting goals. I think it's very important that the leadership team is also setting the goals so we're all aligned towards where we're taking the company. Mm. And do you have like a, a motto that you live by or anything like that? Some people do. Not necessarily. Um, I often say more is more. Mm -hmm. I feel like most people say less is more, but I do feel like more is more. Like I want to know more. I want to see more. I want to do more. I just feel like we, I want to get more out of life. So. Yeah. I think I feel like I naturally gravitate towards to more is more as well. I did get it tattooed on myself as well. Oh, yeah? So pretty That's committed. It. Yeah, you're dedicated. <laughs> um, you mentioned before that you're a, a big reader and um, obviously you're, you're, you take your personal development seriously. If I was to come to you and say, Lauren, look, I'm, I'm, I'm working in a job right now. I'm not really satisfied at all with where I am or the future prospects. I want to just change my life, whether it be build a business, change industries, just, you know, re like start building like my dream life and my dream career. What are three books that you'd get me to read or would you recommend someone reading? Uh, okay. First one I would suggest, I've actually just read this book. It's The Mindful High Performer by Chelsea Pottinger. Cool. Um, saw it at the airport, grabbed it, read it within two days. Um, I feel like it gives you a really good foundation for building a good mindset for what you want. So I think, first of all, knowing what you want to get out of life is, is going to be important. Um, I'm still hung up on 5am club. I really enjoyed that. Really book. good. Yeah. Um, and uh, two more. Okay. Ego is the Enemy, I think, is a really good book to just be able to self-reflect in your work. Um, and How to Win Friends and Influence People, I think, is a really good book for just communication. It's a very old book. That was the first personal development book I ever read, yeah. How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, so Ego is the Enemy. I've heard of this book recommended a couple of times. I don't actually know what it's about. I can obviously gather from the title, but kind of what's, what's the vibe of the book? What's the message? It's about being able to approach situations without letting your emotions take control. Um, but acknowledging your emotions. I think emotions are an important part of a decision that you make, but also not letting them lead that decision. Um, so being able to take your ego away, uh, which I think makes sense, mm. um, and being able to make really conscious decisions having considered everything. Mm. Um, and it's a very important book, I think, when you're, when you're working with a leadership team to be able to just take your ego away from everything. And we want the best solution, not your solution. It doesn't matter who came up with that idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I want to ask you before we before we wrap up some more marketing-related questions because a lot of the people that listen will be into e-com um, and digital marketing, obviously. Now, what I'd, what I'd like to ask, the first one is, in 2023, obviously, it's right around the corner. I think this episode will go live. It'll be one of the first next year. What channels do you see becoming more important in 2023? And then are there any channels that you see potentially becoming slightly less important than they were in 22? Uh, TikTok is a channel. It's the only channel now that you can actually see organic success without paid media. Mm. So TikTok is a big opportunity for businesses, especially businesses that potentially don't have the budget yet to spend. Uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I think, is on the way back okay. um, over the past, I think, year or so. I think it fluctuates a little bit. But, yep. yeah, LinkedIn is strong. I think building personal brands and having a face behind brands is becoming more and more popular. So, therefore... LinkedIn is naturally the, the next step from that. Um, Instagram is keeping up. You know, they're, they're, they're still... Still earning, kicking, eh? Yeah, they're still great for running paid media. Um, they're also... They are bringing out a lot of changes, which is trying to, I guess, compete with TikTok. Um, Facebook, I think, is continuing to slow down a little bit. If you could only advertise on TikTok or Instagram from here on out, which one would you choose? 
advertising with paid media? Both. You can paid media and organic. Paid media, Instagram. Yeah. Organic TikTok. Yeah. It's just TikToks. The I don't know whether it's the algorithm or the or the people that use TikTok, but it's just not. I don't feel like it's as much of that. Like people shop on Instagram all the time. I think TikTok people discover a lot of products and like obviously, particularly with good organic content, drives tons of sales. But yeah, there's something about like the Facebook and Instagram algorithm that is just nothing's been able to touch it yet. Yeah, you're not going to post a photo on Instagram and wake up the next morning and have no. made 10,000 <laughs> sales. Whereas TikTok, could, that could be the case. Uh, like, re- some reels, like we'll have like, obviously for the podcast, we create a lot of content. Like we'll have some pop off on Instagram, like massively that Getting don't pop there. off on, on TikTok. <laughs> but overall, like we, we, we analyze the data, um, like the growth on TikTok like is like, Four or five times faster, yeah. at least. So, yeah, I mean, and and it seems like as well, just in terms of brand awareness and growing your your uh, like following, people are so much more hesitant to follow a new account on Instagram now. But TikTok, everyone's like, let's just, I don't give, I don't care. Yeah, I mean, it's not even about the follows on TikTok as well. You know, you oh, can, not at all. It's just about getting views, you know, mm. increasing that, and then the algorithm naturally promotes you even further. Something I've seen you talk about with TikTok is like SEO optimization. Talk to me about that and, and what are certain things that brands or creators should be doing to optimize the content on TikTok? Yeah, it's you know it's really a simple principle. It's like, who, who do you want to be seeing your product? What are you highlighting about your product? And put those hashtags there. Put the, the copy in the actual TikTok. Put it in the caption. Use the hashtags. Uh, to make sure that you're giving it as, as much of a chance as possible. If you're if it if you're speaking in it, say the words as well because TikTok can pick that up. Um, so it's just making sure that you are very conscious about it. It's the same way you'd do SEO for your website mm. on product or you know use hashtags on Instagram. And have you seen any um, niches or categories start to trend up in the last year, or at, particularly as we move into twenty three? Uh, I mean, through the past two years, past three years, it's been quite a roller coaster with different products that have been launched across, um, I guess, across the market. I think industries that, industries that I'm seeing on the rise. I think we're seeing a lot. I mean, it's, there's always a lot of baby products. There's always a lot of uh, products targeted at mothers. And I think honestly, that's smart. Yep. You know, they're the demographic that would purchase the most, you know, that 25 to 40 year old female, you know, mm. If you've got a product that targets at that demographic, which you do, um, you know, that's going to be a great place to launch an e-commerce business. So mm-hmm. that continues to rise, um, continues to get more competitive as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Like for us with our product, a lot of our followers and like sometimes the volume of our sales will be more in the 18 to 24. But if we look at a conversion rate basis and um, like the, who gives us the most value when we, when we target them. Yeah. It's the, it's that 25 to 34. It's the young mums yeah. crew that are just the biggest advocates and the best purchases because like, they just want to get shit done if they like a product and it's going to add value to the life or convenience like, like ours, they're willing to, to spend the money. Um, another question now, I know I'm putting you on the spot with all these things here and I know you don't want to reveal all your secrets, but what's one e-commerce digital marketing hack that a lot of people don't know about? Creative is the key at the moment. Um, so where we used to run multiple different audiences, where we would test, you know, really niche audiences, now it's really testing more of a general audience and then where you find your customers is through the creatives that you have. Uh, really focusing on a strong hook through that creative. So the hook is what's going to actually hook someone in within three seconds and get them to want to watch the rest of your ad. Um, I'm saying watch because video is primarily where you're going to see the best results. Don't neglect static, but video is likely where you'll see that. Um, so really focus on creative, different creative, testing a lot of creative. And how do you approach testing different creative? Like is it – are you guys now focusing a lot on like TikTok style creative, like one person, like one organic piece of content, or are you like mashing a few up to tell more of a longer story? What sort of content do you guys like to test and how do you approach it? It'll depend on the platform. So TikTok's, uh, TikTok. TikTok style content um, on TikTok, UGC style on Instagram. Um, but the way that we would test is if we have an idea, so uh, something that's going to sell the product, we'll, that will be the one hook. And then we'll have multiple different versions of that one hook. So it could be a GIF, uh, a video ad. It could include two different types of influencers. And that'll be a test. 
uh, then we might have a second hook that we'll test as well. Um, you can also test in a different way and have one video and test, you know, six different hooks on that video and see what hook's going to bring someone in. You can get quite granular. It's going to depend on your budgets. Um, if you're spending, you know, only $1,000 a month, you're only going to need a few tests in that month. But when you're spending 100000 then, you know, you should be testing multiple different uh, sets of creatives each week. Yeah, exactly. And all the, like, that's the thing. All the best marketers in the world now are just saying like, focus on creative. Like it's creative. Back in the day, yeah, you could get really granular with all your targeting and all your different audiences and segments. And that was, that was the way you could really achieve a lot of scale. And obviously the content was important within that, putting the best content in to, to perform. But now it's like, as these platforms become more and more automated and they want you to rely more on the algorithm and the content to find, as you said, the buyers of the product, you just need to lean into that. And look, Maybe in two years again, it'll change. It'll, something else I will mean, be the focus. I mean, give it three months and something else will change. Something will change. <laughs> it did, speaking on changes, how did like the iOS updates and the privacy tracking stuff affect uh, affect the agency and your clients? Yeah, I mean, it made a huge change in terms of what we were tracking. We've gone from being ROAS focused and, you know, ROAS is everything through to MER, so marketing efficiency ratio. So rather than assessing just what happens on the Facebook platform, it's more assessing what happens as a whole. So the education with a client has been challenging to get them from like this metric that they wanted to hit, you know, a six times ROAS to now be okay with a three, but ultimately they're still earning more overall. Yeah. Um, so that education process has been difficult. There are clients where it's, you know, it can be a lot more difficult now. Um, you can track them for, you can track less people, can't track them for as long. So if you've got a, a longer uh, purchasing funnel, that can be a challenge as well because they might drop off. Um, however, we just have had some come back of some of the, the features. Yep. Okay. What sort of features came back? So the attribution window. So rather than being up, so the reason the attribution window is how long you can track that purchase through an ad after the purchase. And the reason that that's so important is you can then understand what creative is actually working. So often someone's going to take more than seven days, you know, maybe they paid monthly. And so if we can track what purchase came through what ad, then we know what budgets to scale. Whereas if we lose all of that data, then you're, you're kind of playing a little bit blind there. So that's been incredible to have that so we can actually understand where the wins are. Yeah, and it's – I understand from like a societal point of view, it's like, yeah, privacy, we don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't mind. I'm like, show like, me ads that me. give me things that I want. That's what I mean. I'm like, I don't know if I'm being biased here because obviously I'm a, a, I'm a marketer and it's in my personal interest to be able to have visibility on what's working and what's not. It's like, yeah, I want personalized ads. I want to see ads of stuff I was looking at and ads that are really specific to me. But it was, it was like, usually like as technology evolves, it's like the tracking gets better, the data gets better. But like we had the peak like two, three years ago. And then it's like, yeah, you got used to all that. Now it's much more of a, how's the business performing on a whole rather than like you just like, cause we used to be able to, we used to have campaigns or ads on, on a certain level and we'd find a single ad within a certain ad set and it was performing really well. And we could dump like 10 grand into that in a day if we wanted to, but it's like, you don't have that sort of data on what's exactly bringing in the conversions anymore. So it's a lot. Yeah. It's just, as you said, like everything changes in business so often, what's going to help a business grow and scale and convert is going to change all the time. Um, I want to wrap it up, but like the last question I want to ask you is just do you have like, one final piece of advice or a message to anyone out there, whether they be a young woman in business or in, in corporate or, or, or a male even that has similar goals to you and wants to go from employee and set a big goal of five, 10 years down the track, whatever it may be, being the CEO of a large company. Just don't let anything stop you or let you second guess yourself through that. Um, I think if you set that goal and everything you do is aligned towards hitting that goal, you will hit it. If you let things like self-doubt come in or if you stray from that path, then that's not the straight line that you're heading towards. So I think just having that belief in yourself. And how do you, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but how do you overcome self-doubt when you start having those thoughts? I think being, I guess, starting that mindfulness journey as well. So having that control over your day, what you're doing, what you want to achieve. I think it's setting those small goals. So, you know, initially the goal would be, you know, become CEO. Cool. What does that look like over a three-year period? Cool. What do I need to do over the next year? I'm going to need to read a lot of books. Cool. So maybe my initial task is I'm going to read a book a month. And so you can actually have that sense of achievement and that sense of winning and working towards your end goal of being CEO by reading that book because that's your mini goal. Um, so I think being able to break that down clearly and then also make sure you're tracking what you're doing. I love that. I, I agree as well. I think 
always work back from where you want to be. It's a really effective way to get there. Um, again, thank you so much, Lauren, for coming in and sharing your wisdom with us. Where's the best place? Um, if anyone wants to find you or looking for a new agency partner to find you or Megaphone, where's the best place they can get more info? Absolutely. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, just Lauren Oaks and Instagram, Lauren Oaks CEO. Same on TikTok as well. I'm starting my um, TikTok journey. How's that? How, are you having fun with the TikTok stuff? Uh, yeah, I did a challenge where I posted a TikTok a day for 30 days to just get me into it, teach me how to edit, how it worked. Um, that went great. I was, you know, day 30, I posted a video of my dog and that went viral. Yeah, how crazy is that? Yeah, yeah. 29 days of sales tips and like helpful marketing advice, slight traction. Day 30 dog, viral. Yeah, that's the thing. And it's like <laughs> when you say the, um, where the, we create so much content for the podcast on TikTok and Instagram and it's done amazingly and we're, we're trying to do a lot more with, with me. It's, it's just like you have so many things to do in your day. It's hard to get the time, but you just need to be able to be consistent because everyone says that has a big following on TikTok. It's like it's, you can never predict the ones that are going to pop off. Like you'll put so much effort into one video and you'll be like, this is for sure going to kill it and nothing. And then the one that you spent five minutes on didn't really think about, you check your account you're like, holy shit. Yeah, five minutes in the emergency vet room. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. But, yeah, I would just say keep going. Yeah. So I cool. tell myself. All right. Thanks, Lauren. And have fun in the, in the States when you go over there. I'm a little bit jealous, but enjoy yourself. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favor. Do me a favor. Do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.